At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and we have a great podcast episode here for you today. But I want to say we are here to become better habitat managers first. That's our goal. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for following along over the past 129 episodes, 130 episodes. We have learned a ton, and we are continuing to do so. So if you want to learn how to improve your land, your habitat, for better wildlife and better hunting, you are in the right spot. Guys, we have Matt Zoll from West Michigan on today. Matt's been on the podcast before. I believe it was episode 65 where he had 10 acres and turned it into a whitetail paradise. But the tables have turned. Matt sold that property and purchased a 30-acre property that he's now going to build a home on, all in West Michigan in a hard-to-hunt, pressured area where I grew up, actually. And, uh, you know, Matt's goals for this property, um, the first goal is to shoot 130-inch whitetail in three years and a 150 in his lifetime. So what we're going to do is we're going to, touch base with Matt again in a year or so and, and then maybe a year after that and just progress and follow the project and, and see how he's doing. Today we're going to talk about, you know, the first steps for the property search, um, how did he know it was the right property, etc. Then we get into the timber harvest, which is a pretty detailed discussion on timber harvest. We talk about a uh, forestry plan and, and next projects, including where to put the house, first food plots, um, anything like that, access. Uh, so it's a pretty great episode, a really Fun discussion with a buddy of mine from from back home, and uh, just excited for Matt with his brand new property. It sounds beautiful, and I cannot wait to see it someday. I want to thank the listeners for tuning in once again. You guys are awesome. Um, the reviews have been great. You know, the hats and shirts we've been selling, a few here, a few there, have been awesome. If you really want to support us, go check that out. Uh, leave us a review. All of the links to that information, to that information, uh, are below. In uh, in the show notes, so just scroll down. You can see how to you can see how to leave us a review. You can see how to check out the website, check out our land plan services, check out our shirts, etc. You can see all that. Um, 
So scroll on down, check that out if you want to help support the podcast. And if you already have, don't worry, guys. I have more decals getting made right now, and we'll be doing a large decal shipment to those of you who left great reviews here really soon. And uh, if, we, if you haven't gotten a decal yet, go to the Habitat Chat Facebook group and go ahead and post on there. That's how we uh, can tell exactly who you are as well. Because sometimes iTunes does not put your real name. They just put some username that maybe you come up with 10 years ago. So thank you very much for your support, guys. I want to uh, thank our sponsors. We have Killer Food Plots. Now I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be doing some spring planting here um, with my Packer Max roller crimper. I got a new crimper from, from Lincoln over at Packer Max. Ended up buying and picking that up last week. I'm going to put that together. I'm going to be doing a review video on it, so stay tuned to our YouTube and our Facebook on that. But I'm going to feed some Killer Food Plot seed mixes into my standing rye, brassicas, and clover. Then I'm going to crimp over it and then see what happens. It's kind of a test plot for me. I'm going to add some soybeans, some sunflowers, really going for um, biomass here and uh, diversity. And then, you know, come fall, I'll terminate that and seed into that thatch as well. Uh, this is helpful if you have sandy, sandy soil like I do, um, you know, so keep that in mind, follow along with that project, but I want to thank Killer Food Plots. They have some great mixes. This mix that I'm going to be throwing in with, with my crimper is going to be the Crop Duster Mix, so check that out, and if you use code HP10%, HP10% sign, you get 10% off from free shipping at KillerFoodPlots.com, so thank you very much for that, and then uh, I also want to thank Packer Max Cult Packers. Lincoln's Crimper is available, code HPC25. I saw someone use that the other day. They got a, you know, a discount on their, on their um, Cultipacker and uh, Crimper combo. So check that out. And then we have, uh, I want to thank HuntWise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, the Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. But overall, I really want to thank the listeners as well. So much for coming back keeping us at the top of the Habitat list, and uh, thanks for subscribing, tuning in. Let's get into it with Matt Zoll from West Michigan, a 130 in three years and a 150 in a lifetime. We are back. We have the man riding shotgun, Mr. Brian Hallbly. How you doing tonight, Brian? I noticed I didn't say you were from Pittsburgh this time. <laughs> That's all right, man. Close enough, but far enough makes it nice, so. Yeah. Doing well. Good, good. We're probably all warmed up now. We just got off the phone with Axel, one of our land plan gentlemen. So we've been yapping for a while already. We should be pretty good to go. Yeah, now that I got the audio issue solved, for sure. <laughs> it's always something, buddy. Always something. Yeah. And then our special guest tonight, guys, we have Matt Zoll. Now, you may have heard that name before. He's been on a few different podcasts around the uh, – country or state here and i know we've had him on episode number 65 um that episode we talked about what to do on 10 acres what's going on tonight matt not much thanks for uh having me back on again excited to be on again uh jared and brian of course bud no we you know we get good to talk to you again good to hear from you we talked a bunch throughout the season strategizing on some some game plan uh, type midseason hunting stuff. How'd your how'd your season end up last year? Uh, close but no cigar on a, on a few scenarios, man. I know I uh, 
there was a couple of times I got real jacked up and I, I called you to walk, walk through a couple, uh, of like, you know, tactics on a, on a buck that I had just come across and stuff. And it was, I had a opportunity at a couple shooters in bow season and then one, one with a rifle and, uh, just, just couldn't put all the, uh, ducks in a row there, but, uh, it was a good season. I took a doe and, um, during bow season and then one with a muzzle loader and, uh, so meat in the freezer and just didn't have the right buck in range. No, I know, and that was pretty awesome. Um, when you were all jacked up, call me. Remember it like it was yesterday. I think uh, you want to call me anytime. You want to talk deer hunt like that, feel free or habitat. That's fun stuff. Um, it's fun, like, analyzing it from my end when I'm not going to be the one who could possibly screw it up. I just throw out some kind of some maybe – different ideas or some, you know, a different perspective on things. And, and it's, it's cool to talk it through like that. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always game for more ears on the scenario, more eyes on the scenario. So I can, you know, try to not screw it up because I'm good at that by myself. <laughs> Same here, bud. Same here. Now, what have you been up to this spring? You've been out turkey hunting, been out fishing, anything like that? Um, not a lot of fishing yet this year so far, but got out turkey hunting, uh, shot a nice Tom with a buddy. We actually doubled up, um, same day. Um, so that was nice. Uh, a couple of good, good Michigan birds. Um, other than that, we've been just grinding and trying to take care of this house prep stuff for, for diving into this house build during, you know, post COVID booming, skyrocketing prices and you know, trying to make sure we're all set there, and it's just been it's been a ride. Yeah, no, but if we get too far um, into the meat and potatoes tier, what are you what are you doing with the lumber prices and everything where it's at, and kind of, you know, with with building a house, um, you guys going through, you holding off, you, I don't know, what do you, what's your yeah. thought? So, so we. We kind of, uh, I would say, we, we hit it right in stride as far as, like, the market went with our last house. We did really, really well. And, um, yeah, the, the the rising cost of building prices just across the board was always an intimidating thing. Luckily, we, we have a really good local builder for the specific style of house that we're building. And um, he's got a really good relationship with some of the local smaller lumber yards and it was able to lock in our prices way back as of basically the, the middle of March. So they're still elevated from what, you know, obviously if you were trying to build in 2019 or 2018, if you look at the numbers, it still probably want to make you vomit a little bit. But in the end of the day, we did well enough on our house and the interest rates were low enough that it kind of, you know, took the, the super high uh, increase in costs out of the picture and it allowed us to still kind of pursue that dream and uh, just keep moving forward with everything. We actually, our builder will be drilling uh, footings and um, pouring cement this week and next week starting to put up structure. So we're, we're moving ahead full steam. Awesome, man. Good to hear. Good to hear. And, and for those that, uh, that don't know, Matt, had a 10-acre parcel, like I mentioned, that we talked about before, um, you know, just like the rest of us, working on small ground, making things happen. And let's, you know, let's hear kind of what happened. I know the name of the the project. We're, so we're going to kind of 
do a few episodes with Matt over the next few years, but the name of the project we're going to call is like a 130 in three years, like a 130-inch deer in three years. So a 130 in three years, 150 in a lifetime. Now, I guess help us understand what that means and what you just did with this whole property swap. So it was, you know, and, and on paper, if you if you just look at it from going from 10 acres to 30 acres, I mean, I know in a lot of guys' minds that's still a, a small chunk of property into a lot sure. of guys that are going to be listening. It's a big chunk of property. Sure. You know, it's all relative. To me, it was more when I when I had the previous house in 10 acres, it was just, okay, that was the minimum that I could, you know, probably get into first house situation and scratch as many uh, – areas as I possibly could and then living in there for almost seven years and doing habitat work you very quickly realize like what it means to have neighbors what it means to not have neighbors what it means to live close to state land and all these factors that are going to go into your success and how much you know hard work you can put in and and how much of that you're going to get back out reciprocated so immediately from from owning that first house in 10 acres that set the set the precedent for what that next purchase and what that next opportunity was going to be um and that kind of rolled it into where it was okay it doesn't necessarily have to be 200 acres but it it's got to be more than that 10 and it's got to be that right chunk of property location size access features you know i started pulling all my stuff from my little chunks of state land that I hunt, looking at what types of habitat those deer really like to be in and around, you know, used, used what I could from my private land access, you know, not only from my, uh, my house that I own and the property that I had, but the lease that I was on, a couple other buddies that had some private land um, upgrades and purchases going from 10 acres to, I got a buddy on the other side of the state that's got a 65 acre farm now um, and just, you know, it's paying off dividends, huge for them. So just kind of picking as many brains as I could um, in that process. And then when we finally came to that point of looking for the property, just boots on the ground, sign, area, neighbors, you know, shape of the property, all that good stuff. So how did he uh, start out before he had the 65? Did he start out with a smaller piece also? Yeah, he actually was in a, a piece just like mine. I think he was a, a scotch under 10, like a 9.6 or something like that. Um, and he's over kind of – he's probably not too far from you, um, Jared, to be honest with you. He's over east side of the state, right about the thumb area. Um, and he he did really, really well in his 10-acre piece. He was just in a really good area, rural, farm country, just had a little – little slice of oasis there between a lot of ag and he made that work really really well um and then he had an opportunity come up for him and his wife and kid at the time um and a a 65 acre farm came up on the market and the guy basically shaped the farm it was it was pretty cool the farm was on i think 20 acres um and then there was a 40 acre basically barren field with a creek bottom that ran through it and the guy that originally owned it Planted like twenty thousand or twenty five thousand different trees and shrubs, wow. and basically like built a deer maze. I guess is, is the best way I can describe it. 
and now he's just basically fine-tuning what this guy created. And, I mean, the quality of, of bucks that my buddy has on his property that he holds on his property and he sees on a regular basis is outstanding. He took two great Michigan bucks this year, a couple that he's had history for the last couple of years since he's owned the farm. So he's uh, he's definitely somebody that I talk to quite a bit. We share a lot of ideas and and just kind of go back and forth about what do you do here and whatnot. Sure. And so did he, uh, how long did he have that 10 acres? I think he had the 10 acres for about five years or six years, I think, because both, we both went to school together at Central. He went um, into – That's right. He was a physician assistant, and I was a PT, so we both took a lot of the same undergrad classes together, and that's how um, him and I kind of met up. And I think at that time, we both didn't really realize how much the outdoors and deer hunting and that kind of stuff was uh, a pretty much a major part of our lives. And then uh, once we started seeing social media posts about success stories and, you know, shooting big bucks or, you know, a lot of big bucks sign, we started to connect a little bit more after that fact. And we just found out that, man, too bad we didn't do this earlier on. Yeah, if we all would have thought that way a lot younger, we'd be a lot further ahead for sure, but it's never too late to start. Right, exactly. And I think that's just a it's just a situation I think when I was, you know, younger and in college, that was just something that it was more of a yeah, this is, you know, what I did, this is what my family did. It didn't really become a true, you know, an addiction or a passion, you know. I don't want to say that there was any part of it that was shameful, but I think in in your younger years when you're you know surrounded by a bunch of, a bunch of youth, sometimes it can be either portrayed as a you know a really sweet thing or people can look at it from a different perspective. So at least in my opinion, I think I just kind of kept it to myself about like no, this is just something I love to do, and uh, I just wasn't surrounded by as many people that love to do it as well too. So it's hard to open up a little bit more about it. Right. So the. Uh... The ten acres he had for five or six years—that's that's a pretty good amount of time as far as real estate goes for putting in some uh, investment for you know trying to get a decent return on it. Besides the time, did he have any improvements that he made on that property that you're aware of? I know he did a lot with uh, the shaping, access trails, um, food plots was a, a pretty standard thing. He would send me some uh, pictures and videos and it just looked like something out of a magazine. The guy really has his, uh, his kind of soil biology dialed in about what his soil needs and what he does. And, and so I knew he was going to be successful going from 10 to 65. I mean, he, he'll send me uh he's got a, one of those big printed out topography maps and he's got laminated, you know, and he'll, he'll take his uh, dry erase markers and draw over top about what screen and what's, you know, winter food source, what summer food source, and like he's he's full blown on addicted to it. He'll paste it up on his wall in his garage, and he'll send me photos. Hey man, how does this look? This look like enough food here. This is what I'm working on here in this bedding area, and this and that. And um, yeah, he's really got it dialed in. Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like a uh, guy we can spend a lot of time around a campfire with for sure. Yeah, he's he's good for – we'll usually touch base uh, two or three times throughout the season, phone calls. Usually, coincidentally, it's always after one of us will uh, will shoot a nice buck or have a good encounter. I talked to him last year. He shot a buck. He's had history on the, on his farm with, for two years. I think he, 
ages buck at four and a half. Um, just a wow. really good buck. Couple couple kickers, yeah. some trash on it, good mass. Um, I think I think he scored a one a low one forties. I think it was, um, but really good Michigan deer. Heck yeah! So are you kind of modeling what he did uh, to what you did starting out with your ten acres? Like walk us through. You know where you went from there when you had the ten acres and and how long you had it and what 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 you kind of went through your head to where you're going to upgrade. Yeah, so that the ten I bought it started off as pretty barren open timber, a lot of mature pine, oak, um, maple, very open understory as I think most, not most, but you know a lot of uh, residential areas are and. Um, I knew that doing a, a cutting was something I wanted to do. Didn't really know where to go, how to do it, or whatnot. And um, talked with uh, Nick Percy at Killer Food Plots, and he hooked me up with his timber guy at the time. And um, that was the best thing that I could have done was do that cutting. And that cutting really allowed me to see how much more active I could make the deer. Like, I put in food plots and had food plots from the start, and that was something that was effective in bringing deer in, but it wasn't until I did that select cut and changed my food plots from being, you know, a little bit more isolated and, you know, squares or kidney beans or whatever it is, but turning them into more like travel corridors and routes and and getting cover in between some of those, some of those trails and some of those food sources. And that increased the last two years since I've had it cut deer movement substantially. You know, I could see deer for an hour to an hour and a half before dark, where before it was half an hour to, you know, that last 15 minutes of shooting light. So it was was much, much easier to get eyes on the deer, to study them, to pull those bucks in a little bit sooner and all those types of things. And it was when I saw that, that I saw the benefit of like, well, when I did come across that next property, depending on what it was, you know, if it was a mixture of agriculture and woods, or if it was like all woods, which ended up being what I saw I knew immediately depending on the type of woods and the quality and the cover and that kind of stuff I can always add food and I can make the food to the best of my ability you know it's it's basically just you know chemistry and soil biology if you do it right as long as rain's on your side and sun's on your side you're gonna you're gonna do okay but I knew that the one thing that was the huge factor that I've seen increase that deer movement was the cover and I think that's what I underestimated that first probably two or three years I owned that property is I just wanted those beautiful pictures of food plots and this and that and the other. But if you don't got the cover, they're going to use the food, but they're going to use it after you're going to be out there. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and it's a process and a learning curve. we all been through it, and uh, I'm still learning. I mean, we're all still learning, but sunlight is huge. I mean, that's that's what we talk about all the time on this podcast is if you got the ability to do it, get the sunlight to the ground and, and thicken those places up like you did on your 10 there for sure. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was that was a huge, like, just having that success, even though we got it cut about two or two and a half years before we sold the place, seeing the growth in two and a half years was enough to sell me at, like, well, you know what, if I find the same type of maturity in the forest of a future property, like, I won't hesitate to get it select cut in the same way you know, going about it with the same principles and stuff in mind in those in those areas that need it because it's just going to do nothing but, you know, provide that future benefit that I'm looking for. 
So what made you get to the point where you were ready to start looking for another piece of property? Well, I know I talked with you guys the last time that I think I was on, I had a, a lease that was 120 acres. And um, that was nice. But again, it was a lease. It wasn't something you owned. Even though I could jump up there and I could plant food plots, it was still a 40-minute drive, which most people are like, oh, man, I would kill for something that close. <laughs> but I tell you what, it's great area up there. But the last year I was actually physically on the lease, we saw or we, we came upon, I think it was three or four poached deer carcasses that were dumped on the edge of the road. Oh, geez. And we we found out that there were a couple neighbors that were just feeding really hardcore with a bunch of uh, timed feeders and just dumping corn out like adjacent to us. So basically using the lease that we had as a safe haven. And then they were providing, you know, that, that food source. And it just, it just kind of dawned on me. It's like, man, if you don't, if you don't have a handle on, you know, what's around you, you can have the best chunk of ground in the world, but you know, 120 acres isn't big enough if you have it that way. Sure. You might need, you know, three, four, 500 acres where you can really buffer your neighbors and it doesn't matter what they're doing or how they're doing it. But obviously if I'm getting carcasses dumped in the ditches and in the property lines and the boundaries, people don't really care. They're just going to violate and do whatever they want to do. So I started thinking about that and I said, well, you know, I got one kid now, I'm going to have a second one coming. It'd be nice to have something that I could really sink a lot of time and energy to, and I could make that something where I know those kids are going to just have a ball, whether it's just sitting in the deer blind in the summertime watching deer um, or actually hunting or, or doing whatever else. I just wanted that place that whatever kind of effort I was going to put into, I was going to get, you know, to some extent, a reciprocation of benefits, even if it wasn't a one-to-one ratio. Um, I just felt like I wasn't getting that out of that lease, and I knew that 10 acres wasn't going to get me that for that particular 10 acres. Gotcha. So did you have a particular area in mind when you started your property search or kind of uh, maybe a couple different areas? Um, it was kind of a, a hybrid between, okay, where is going to be a good area that's going to be large private parcels? That was my that was my big thing. But then also, uh, actually, uh, it was kind of a family decision. It was school district location between both my parents and my in-laws. With young kids, we were already close, relatively close to both sets of parents before. And uh, we wanted to kind of keep that closer. We didn't really want to get too much further away. But, again, you come into a struggle. I mean, I live in Muskegon County. There's not a ton of big parcels that come up for sale in general. And if there are, it's like, man, you know, is it the right one? There's no way I can afford that. Just a lot of other variables in mind with that. And when we stumbled across this one, actually, I stumbled across it a year before we bought it. And I told myself I should go look at it. But in that part, I had a mindset of like, no, if I'm going to go from 10, I need to go to 40 at least. So I didn't look at it. And it was sold quick. And I was like, oh, dang it. I missed out on that. You know, I should have went and at least looked at it. But then um, a year later, uh, unfortunate for the previous owner, unfortunate for us, it came back up on market. They ended up selling, um, I guess, a, a father-in-law front of the bill for the property. And, and during that time that they owned it, he ended up passing 
and uh, the the mother-in-law didn't want to continue on with whatever project they were they were doing for their kids. Sounded mm-hmm. like they were going to try and buy the property and then and do a build on there, but didn't turn out, and they ended up putting it back up for sale. Okay. So right off the get-go, you had already made up your mind that the property would have to be somewhere where you were planning on building and living. That was, I would say it was 75%. I would love to live there just to have eyes on the property the whole time, have somewhere oh, yeah. I can sit on, on my back porch and just, you know, listen to the wildlife, drink coffee, you know, do all that type of stuff. But it wasn't a it wasn't a deal breaker. Actually, when we bought this property, my wife told me, she's like, well, in the event that for some reason we can't build for whatever reason, you know, township, zoning, whatever else, she's like, and you can't build in the spot that you want to build, are you still going to want this property? And I told her, yeah. I said, at the very least, I said, I, you know, this is something where it, the property quality outweighed, you know, the stipulations of like if it was going to be a deal breaker for living on there or not. Okay. So that's interesting. Tell us about what it was about the property that kind of made it the right fit for you, whether you were going to be able to build or not. What was, what was the uh, determining factor? So the big thing for me was the amount of change in topography that it has. Um, it still kind of amazes me as I as I walk through it and as I explored a little bit more. Um, I had uh, I walked the property two or three times. I walked it with my father-in-law. I walked it with my dad. Um, I walked it with Nick Percy a couple times, just trying to make sure that this was going to be the right piece. Um, the the big thing that I loved about it was it's actually a corner lot. Um, so it's got access from a south road and access from an east road for the entire property boundaries. So for prevailing wind scenarios, it's almost ideal. Um, you can access at least 50% of your, your borders of your property from a road and leaving minimal scent access. The uh, The other scenario that I really looked at was it went from it had a, it, it's relatively I would say flat. There's not a lot of hills. There's not a super big change in elevation. There's a about three ridges on the entire property. Um, it's got a actually a drainage creek from uh, like one of the county drains that originates just to the east of there. Um, so it's got water that naturally occurs there all year round. But the biggest draw to me was a a centrally located pretty large hemlock and maple swamp um, that was full of a lot of just raised root beds that gave a lot of prime bedding, gave thermal cover. Um, it was centrally located to where I would never have to really go in there if I didn't want to. The deer were already using it pretty naturally. They would use the edges. And uh, the other big factor for me was it was surrounded by a lot of big um, private chunks and in an area where there's no state land anywhere close. Um, and I know this particular area um, has been very consistent with holding big deer in the past, just from growing up around the area, driving and actually just seeing them out in the fields or seeing them cross the road. It just notoriously holds big deer. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect property. Um, you have a, so. Yeah, for sure. So do you have a plan in place, either in your mind or, or mapped out, that you're going to take this place? 
Um, I kind of do. The, the the biggest thing that I looked at was it was basically untouched. It was 100% wooded. Um, there were areas that were just thick as crap, and then there were areas that were a little bit more open. Um, some of the swamp had a lot of water. Some had minimal water. It all kind of drained and wanted to drain towards that creek. You could tell the previous owner, he had some plastic culverts out there to try and, like, encourage the water to go a particular area or kind of help it, you know, from flooding out and those types of things. So I think the the biggest thing that I did was um, when I was talking with Nick when we were walking the property, he says, you know, this property is is 30 acres, but because of how it's laid out and the topography, it's going to hunt like it's, you know, 40 to 60, especially if you hunt it smart. And if you are going to build here, if you build in that southeast corner, which is where we ended up building, um, it doesn't impact the the woods at all, which is which is super nice. Um, the next thing I knew is I was kind of thinking about like, man, the the property is just it was really tough to access from any point of just being on the quiet side of things. Like you were going to make a bunch of noise no matter where you went, and it was going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort to cut access trails. And, and go through that whole process to, to get to those areas where you needed or where you wanted to be. And that's where I kind of thought about, like, well, you know, it would be worth bringing in my the tree guy that I had used with uh, Nick before and uh, just letting him walk the property, seeing if there's any money to be made, first and foremost, because those skitter trails make just great access trails. Plus, then you can plant those with clover, with chicory, rye, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, and they do a ton of the work for you. Plus, then you uh, you get to reap the benefits of not taking five years to cut access trails. No, well said there. Um, I just had mine logged out last fall, as you know, and I planted those things right behind the the skitter, right behind the dozer, and it was awesome. Um, I mean, you got to be just giddy going from ten acres to to 30 i know i know i would especially with the topography like you said the swamp in the middle the diversity you're seeing across the property um it just so far i'm i'm tracking i'm liking the the thing that got me most jacked was i put in next to zero effort on that place last year knowing that when our tree guy was was actually getting out there to get it cut. It had to be a particular time because he had to do a couple a couple skid roads around the edges and, and through a portion of the swamp to get back to some access pockets of hardwoods. And it had to be either really dry or in the middle of winter. And uh, we decided to pull the trigger right away to do it. And um, I tell you what, I ran cameras out there probably from just like a week or two before he started to cut. I should have been running them before, but I had a higher percentage of mature deer using that property before, during, and after the cutting than I probably had at my last like 10 acre chunk over the course of like four or five years. Like I had some nice deer that would come through, never anything consistently. Like last year I ended up with with three good mature deer, two big eights in a in a ten, that I had multiple photos of them, and they were cutting. I mean, I had multiple photos of them during the cuts, after the cuts, 
same day as they were out there working. And I'm like, man, if, if they're out there screwing around doing that and I'm doing nothing, like it's going to be, it's going to be good when I actually start putting work into this place. Uh, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. You had to wait for the logger to get down with another job before he could make it over, and, and you were just kind of like, I'm just going to monitor this year and, and see what happens, and nothing yeah, I just, nothing wrong with that. I just hunted a lot of state land this year. I took that opportunity to to explore some of my spots that I previously had hunted and then went a little bit deeper, went a little bit further, took a little more chances on some stuff, and they just kind of let that place sit. And I mean, I'm... And I know that it, the crazy thing is about this is like, man, the three biggest bucks on the property made it. I have pictures of them January 2 through January like 7 before I pulled my trail cameras down. So it's like they made it through the season, which gets me even more excited because I, I believe like two of them are a three and a half and one of them potentially is a four and a half year old deer. So it's like this year, of course, you know, you're building a house this year. So your, your time's going to be occupied there. But, you know, this year, I have a lot more, I think, dedication to even just setting up a quick hunt. I'll have some food in there. I'm going to relatively leave the whole property alone because I'll be so busy with the house. So it's just going to be a matter of timing if sure. I get it right. Sure. And and remind me, you said the two access roads is one on the south and one on the east or the west? East. South and east. Oh, and then the Perfect. Nice job. And then there's a drainage creek that runs um, like 280 or 300 feet from the southern um, road. It kind of parallels that road from going from east to west. And then as it gets closer to the west, it kind of tails off and it actually cuts across the road, like right at our property line. So the nice thing about that drainage creek, it's about four and a half, five and a half feet deep. So you can actually drop in the bottom of that and transverse you know, from east to west or west to east out of sight. Um, and then just pop up on the bank somewhere else, which is which is kind of another nice feature as well. No, it sounds like a, a diamond in the rough over there so far, and you haven't even really gotten your hands on it yet. Um, I'm super excited for you. And, and I want to hear about – I understand why you did the timber harvest uh, for, you know, having them help with the access trails the scare trails around the outside of the property so you can not infringe on the inner bedding area, the inner swamp. That all makes sense to me. Um, how did the timber look when you got it? Let's hear about what Nick's Forrester or his timber guy said when you guys walked it together um, and what kind of cut you did, you know, how many trees they take out, that sort of thing. Yeah, they – uh I would say the, the the majority of the trees ended up taken. They took 217 trees off okay. of the property. Um, there was, not, I think, not a hundred huge amount. No, not a huge amount at all. I think if you average it out, you know, it comes out to be right around seven trees an acre, which isn't a ton. There are definitely oh. some spots where they took it heavier, um, which was kind of per my request. Like I said, because, you know, if you think about it, you know, it's 30 acres, but 12 or – 12 or 13, best my guesstimate, is that hemlock swamp. They didn't take any hemlocks or anything like that. There's no need. I was educated quite a bit that hemlocks are, you know, if paper shortage is in really, really, really bad, you know, situations, they'll cut hemlocks. But hemlocks are like their last result. It's super hard on chains. It's super hard on equipment. 
Um, and it's oftentimes a real big pain to get out, which I didn't want to take any hemlocks to begin with. I just love the way it looks. But that was just another good little piece of information that I learned. Um, oh, and it's like from thermal, our three guy. Thermal yeah, and it's thermal, too, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's to me, it's just like, well, it's not a cedar swamp, but, you know, it's it's probably the next closest best thing that I could do. Yes, um, but the majority of the trees that they took, I think they took 130 or 140 um, soft maple off theirs. And there was a section just north of the creek that was super mature soft maple. Like there was, I don't know, 12 or 15 trees in that pocket that were probably five, five and a half foot in diameter at the base. Holy Just cow. giants. But they held a lot of standing water in that area, and it held a lot of, there was just no sunlight getting the forest floor. And it was it was decently thick with cover just because of the abundance amount of water. But Nick and the forester both said, if you if you cut this appropriately, this will get thicker than snot, and it will be just a great buffer between your house and the rest of your property. And if you can keep some, you know, access trails brush hogged and planted, like it's just going to be optimal for deer movement. Like those deer are going to bed in there, move in there, feed in there. You could be at your house and they just won't care because it's just going to be that thick. Um, So I had him cut that stretch really, really heavy. I think we left, you know, probably the the property to the dimensions just so you're kind of aware the south side of the property is is about 940 feet at the road, and then it's 1320 deep, just to oh, give you guys a little comparison. Yeah. So that, that soft maple stretch that he really cut heavy is probably 600, 600 feet long by, I don't know, 100 feet wide. And he cut that really, really, really heavy um, in just hopes of that was probably the most open area in the property. And where is that located east to west wise? East to west, it actually runs the entire width of the property east to west, almost. Okay. okay. It's just north of that. It's just north of that creek. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, which is where we're end up going to be uh, building is going to be just south of that creek by about 120 feet or 115 feet or so. Okay. And what did they have to say about the regeneration in there? and how it relates to how much water is in there. So they basically said that getting any sunlight to that forest floor based on the amount of moisture that wants to be there versus the amount of moisture that's just going to be naturally wanting to go there is going to be big. Like it's going to boom. There was a lot of, sadly, there was a lot of dead standing ash in that area as well that they tipped over when they were in there. Sure. I I asked them to tip it over just because I didn't want to be you know, having Widowmakers hanging over my head when I'm in there doing stuff, and I'll pull that out and, you know, sell it for firewood on the road or burn it in the wood stove or whatever else. But, you know, the biggest thing for me was there was the ash, there was the maple, and then there was a lot of undergrowth that just had potential. Um, Where I kind of see this going, just depending on how it goes this year and how much cleanup I get done, depending upon, you know, how much moisture content there is, does it want to flood, does it not want to flood, like, I'm either thinking some hybrid willows or even getting some pockets of spruce trees and running some spruce trees on those higher higher areas there that don't want to hold that water um, and getting those going before uh, the undergrowth gets going. But 
I mean, I've already walked two or three of the skitter trails out there right now, and I can tell you right, it's it's already starting to blow up from last year's cutting, and I haven't even had time to clear, you know, 50% of the tops out of there yet. Sure, and I think uh, you, you read my mind, <clears throat> excuse me, with the hybrid willow. Um, I was obviously going to suggest that, but I was wondering if they mentioned anything about the soft maple region in there that might go gangbusters and and help dry up some of that. But the the hybrid or the Shrimco will definitely do that. And yeah, then, and, and uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, yeah, definitely they talked about the, just the regeneration that's going to be there was going to change that soil topography. You know, if you're putting up 10 shoots per one tree that was cut, just the amount of trees that are going to have access to that soil floor and the amount of sunlight that's going to come true to that soil then is going to, you know, definitely help with, with decreasing the hydrology of the soil. That was going to be, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do anything that's going to dry it all the way up, but there was there were some pockets in there where you'd be, you know, if you stepped wrong, you'd be over your, your rubber boot pretty easily. Right. Yeah. No, it sounds like you're you're on the right path there. And then um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, with so with total, the, so, go ahead. Yeah, let me I, think. I was just going to say total total purposes for what they cut. The majority was soft maple. Then there was a lot of beach on the property, um, and they took every beach that had the signs of beach blight. And they left the other beach beach trees that were going to be good producers. Um, that was the one thing that I did see a ton of when I first initially walked the property was a lot of foraging for from deer and from turkey for beech nuts. Which there's there's not a ton of oak on the property, which is something that was different than the previous ten acres that I was on. The ten acres had a ton of white oak, red oak, black and yellow, and you know all the all the varieties. And uh, this is has probably got I would say 30 oak trees, 40 oak trees on the entire property. And I made sure that they were all left with the exception of a couple that were in just a couple areas that I knew weren't going to be beneficial and they were of a good quality tree that were going to provide, you know, some money that was going to help fund that project. Um, But a preservation of the oak, that'll probably be something that I do get into with the planning. Um, and, and trying to to give a little bit more oak trees to that particular chunk of property. And then there was some white pine that was taken. Um, it's kind of funny. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, – um, you guys are all familiar with, like, a sassafras tree, obviously, correct? Yes, in my yard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're walking through the woods, and we come to this tree, and I look at it, and I'm like, Rick, what, what kind of tree is this? And he looked, and it's like a 35, 40-foot-tall tree probably 10 inches, 12 inches in diameter. I said, what is this? And he says, that's a sassafras. I said, what? Dude, I got like four or five trees on this property that are just giant sassafras trees. And uh, he says a funny story about that. His, His portion of his house, you know, people run like tongue and groove or people run, you know, knotty pine, you know, that kind of stuff. He took some mature sassafras trees off a client's property had them milled. Apparently they had a really sweet looking, unique grain to their wood. Okay. So 
that's going to be a little project that I'm going to do either from my house or the main cave or the garage. Oh, nice. I'm going to take those take those trees out and, and uh, put them up in the house. <laughs> but I've never seen a sassafras tree that's bigger than maybe like 15 feet maximum. Yeah. Well, and, and those things sucker out like crazy. So if you take those down, you're going to have a giant regrowth like aspen almost from what I've seen. Um, right. They're, they're nuts. But, and, you know, it, 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 it could be pretty cool. But the weird thing about that is, though, is they're in areas where there's hardly any sunlight to the floor. So it's almost right. like they started growing, you know, 7,500 years ago, maybe when there was some – cutting that was done because they're like on the edges of that hemlock swamp um, but if you cut a tree there you're going to get a little sun little pocket there but you know you're going to get some sassafras regrowth i had a ton at my old place but never had anything in the in the mature level that these trees are no nor have i and i'm speaking from experience around my house where i try to kill the dang things and they won't die so they're like their roots will go around my foundation and continue under the mulch, under everywhere, and pop up next to a rain gutter. They're insane. Um, oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and so th- I didn't know that about the timber or the, the the milling or the wood of it though. That's pretty cool. Um, and while you were telling that, I remembered my th- thought. You said you're gonna clean up 50% of the treetops. Uh, tell me your thoughts on on treetops and your plan. So my plan is right now is I can probably access 70%. Well, after this weekend, I'll be able to access about 70%. I got a little project to build a little – I built a basically a, a man bridge to get through a, a little pocket of swamp that's going to get my tractor into a nice big pocket of the property. But basically, I'm going to take everything that's probably, I don't know, four inches or six inches in diameter or bigger cut that with the saw and I'll grapple those or skid those logs out. Um, everything else that's left with tops, I'm just going to pick those tops up with my grapple bucket on my tractor and then just position them in, in different areas for wind breaks or for little pockets of cover and whatnot, areas that aren't going to be as likely for sun to hit the ground anyways or regrowth or if I need to make a barrier this way or that way or anything like that. Um, but the amount that I have to clean up it, it's not going to be a one-year project. I realistically think it'll probably take me three years to to truly get it cleaned up the way I want to. So once you got access for equipment and things, what are your first uh, food plots going to look like? So I have one area that was a, a state. It was already kind of relatively open. It had some undergrowth and surrounded by It's right on the edge of a swamp right on the edge of that um, hemlock swamp. Um, And that area was relatively open. So I had them stage the timber there. So he basically dropped his blade and just scraped all those saplings and moved everything out of the way so he could stage all the logs there when they were cutting them up and and sizing them up um, for transport and whatnot. So that area generally seems like it's going to turn into, at least for this year, my kind of destination plot, my largest one-stop food source. The nice thing is is that my neighbor directly to the east of me across the road, he's got a 40 that from observation from the previous year and and into this year, he plants corn and he plants soybeans. He's got a decent amount of space that he was able to plant that crop and get it up and that actually was providing food 
pretty late in the year for the deer. Um, so I don't have to go as heavy with what I previously did at my 10 acres with trying to go really heavy with like a brassica or anything like that. I probably will, you know, turn something into brassicas for sure. But the nice thing is, is I'm already thinking like, well, if I leave my desk, if I leave the destination food sources primarily at my neighbor's and I can delay those deer long enough on my property before they go over there, like I'm, I'm doing my job there. And I don't have to, you know, I can be a little bit more creative as to what I want to put in the soil there. So that's going to be probably my big plot for this year. And then the rest of the thing I'm going to do is just make sure my access trails for as much as I can get my tractor to are clear. And then probably for everything that I can get clear up to an early fall planting, it'll be like a buckwheat, a rye, a wheat, a triticale something like that, and then seed a ton of clover into those, a ton of chicory into those once they're up and established four to six inches. So that way those will turn into just low-maintenance crops for hopefully next year of the spring and, and the years to come. Sure. So the neighbor, those aren't um, commercial ag fields. That That's something he just leaves up for the deer? Yeah, it's something he leaves up for the deer. He's got the one thing I did notice when I was when I was going to look at the property. He's got two redneck, hard-sided uh, tower blinds, one up front towards the road and one deep to the property. And I was like, oh, well, not that everybody who hunts out of a you know a big hard-sided blind is going to be a rifle hunter, but I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe he does just more rifle hunting. And um, kind of a nice thing is my taxidermist that I've used for uh, my last couple deer. He lives a little bit west of me, probably two miles as the crow flies. So he had kind of a little bit of intel about the area and about the people around there before I bought the place. Um, and he obviously gets some pretty good intel from people are bringing him deer and whatnot. He had told me last year that they didn't shoot a deer the whole year. And I saw their trucks out there quite a bit on similar days that I hunted. And I saw quite a few deer on those days, small bucks, does, and for them to not shoot those deer it kind of let me know i haven't had conversations with him yet which is going to be you know kind of the thing i'm looking forward to this spring this summer hopefully it'll it'll pull them over when they're seeing the house and the structure go up but i basically just want to let them know like hey guys you know i've already kind of heard through the grapevine that you guys will pass those deer you want to shoot those mature deer type of situation that's the same same thing that i want to do so i basically want to just go knock on doors and find out what everybody's doing over there doesn't matter to me if you want to shoot a young buck, go for it. But, you know, if everybody wants to be on board for shooting bigger deer, that's that's just an awesome situation. Yeah, that sounds like a good sign. And, and like you said, you know, more power to anybody else. But you all like to get on the same page just to see where they're at for sure. Yeah, the, the chunks around the property, when I did the math at, like, what's not really like a primary residential or even if it is a residential situation, the amount of property that they have to go with it, we should have somewhere about 350 or 400 acres that are pretty much, you know, untouched or could be managed for, for quality deer. Excellent. Um, which is, which is going to be really, really promising moving forward. So are you going to get started on anything that sort of takes a few years to get going, maybe some switchgrass or some fruit trees, anything like that? Yep. I actually got, uh, Right now, since we uh, sold the house, we're living in the in-laws, mother-in-law suite, and I got I got a, a 
kind of a cement pad basketball court out behind their house. So I got about 25 fruit trees out back, a mixture of pears and apple trees out there that I got in pots. And uh, just going to continue to keep them watered. And I'm just trying to selectively pick out those areas where I want to plant more. We actually, um, through the walk on the property and after the cutting, it revealed we have about, I don't know, eight or ten, I don't want to call them wild apple trees, but apple trees that have been there since, you know, maybe that land was much more open um, right. farmland or, you know, to some extent. And they're they're pretty big in diameter. So, I spent a lot of my time this spring getting the areas cleaned up around there, making sure those apple trees get sun, making sure those apple trees are going to get fertilizer and stuff that they probably haven't had for a number of years and just going to see what those apple trees turn into, what types they might be and those types of things. And then I'll probably will stage fruit tree plantings, apples and pears kind of adjacent to those for cross pollination and, and those types of things. That what fertilizer are you going to use for all your, existing apple trees any idea so the existing man i've had luck with just the job's fruit stakes you know i don't know if that's the best thing to do or not but that's what i ran at my previous house and when i planted fruit trees the very first spring we had that house to the time i sold it i know i had the standard like three quarters of an inch in diameter trees that you get from your you know your your county your your co-op sales and that kind of stuff they went from, you know, three-quarter of an inch to an inch um, galas and honeycrisps and um, some Fujis. They were almost, I don't know, six inches in diameter, six and a half inches in diameter by the time I sold the place. Fruiting great. I didn't do anything really like soil prep besides like, you know, my food plots and stuff like that. But I just did the Job's, uh, the fruit um, fertilizer spikes and pounded them in appropriately right at the drip line. and. They seem to do phenomenal with that. Any new tree that I planted, man, I've had the best success with. I know that you guys have seen the success before, too, with that uh, retain from Nick Percy. That stuff has been phenomenal. I just oh, get yeah. it wet and dunk the root ball in that baby, and I don't have to hardly water the fruit trees at all or the spruce trees at all. That stuff just does the work for you. Yeah, I've, I've used those spikes before, and uh, they seem to work fine. Uh friend of mine who's a little more knowledgeable than me about trees he said he recommended like a handful or maybe even like half of a solo cup full of like triple 10 or triple 13 and just sprinkling that around the drip line because his thing was those spikes might pull the roots like towards those spikes and not strengthen the roots out in the other directions or something like that like I said there's guys smarter than me that understand that but I didn't see any negative effects from using the spikes, and I always say if stuff's working for you, keep using it. No, and that makes sense 100%. If you can get, you know, your drip line covered 100% versus, you know, I was put. I think my biggest trees, I was putting three to four stakes out at a time. You know, you're still only covering a very small percentage. I mean, those stakes are an inch, inch and a quarter in diameter. Right. You know, versus right. if, you're, if you're sprinkling it, yeah, you're going to go through it a little quicker once it, once it gets into the soil, but at the same time, you got 360 degrees of coverage. That's not going to be a bad thing either. No. No, you brought up a good point about freeing up those native apple trees that are already there because, let's face it, it takes years to grow fruit trees, and 
if if you've got some older ones on the property already, it's it's worth paying attention to them. Jared and I do land plans. We always point those out to customers when we're and clients when we're walking their properties to say, hey, you might want to take a few hours out of the day and just come down here and free these things up. Makes a big difference. Yeah, there was coincidentally that area that they staged the timber um, that I had them, you know, blade out and move out that I'm going to turn into a bigger plot. There was three, you know, there was four trees around the perimeter there that Rick and I both noticed when we were walking it, marking trees. Like I said, definitely, you know, make sure you spare these things. And he spared them. He didn't scar them up, didn't do anything bad, but he, we, they still a lot of residual chunks of butts of trees and, you know, some brush that was around the area, some other trees that were shading them out. So last weekend I went out there and spent a whole day on Sunday just cleaning that whole area up. And, man, does it does it look good, you know, all that sun that's going to get there. It's not going to do anything for them necessarily or like right now in the moment. Like I've already saw them. They don't have blossoms this year. I wouldn't expect them to. But uh, I'll get some fertilizer to them and uh, – Hopefully next year they're going to pull some blossoms because I mean they're they're mature trees they're big you know I think the smallest ones on the property were eight ten inches in diameter there's there's a couple that are twelve fourteen inches in diameter like those big ones you see on you know the, the front of somebody's farmhouse that's been there for 120 years oh yeah and if you get the right nutrients to them and you get those trees pruned a little bit it's just going to be a a huge food producer and you don't have to hardly do that much to it. Yeah, and if you get to them early enough, if you're if you're in there doing any timber stand improvement when the snow's still on the ground before those trees are going to blossom, I mean, you can make it happen. I've done that myself. I found them while I was out doing some TSI and freed them up, and, you know, that spring they had flowers and fruit in the fall. Right, exactly. So how about switchgrass or CRP or pollinator habitat anything like that you're going to get started or is that kind of on the back burner switchgrass has been something i've i've loved to want to do i just have never had the the property to do it the area that i'm debating on it just depends on how the regrowth happens is going to be on that really heavy soft maple cutting um depending on how it wants to grow in the moisture level in the soil. That's the area that I've been talking with uh, Nick quite a bit about, okay, if I was going to do a, a switchgrass plant and if I was going to incorporate that there, how do I do that? What would it look like? What would I have to do? Um, I would love to do it. I just don't know if the topography is going to support, if that's going to be the best option for basically where I'm at. It seems like it might be a little wet. I, I don't That's know, Matt. Answer. I haven't been yeah. there. I'd love to come see it, but it seems like um, it might be a little wet and maybe, I don't know. Like I said, I'll, and, and, I'll call you when I'm over there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love you guys to, you know, if you're in the, ever on the west side of the state, stop by. We'll go have some beers. Hopefully that, you know, when you're over here, the house will be up. We can, you can sit on the porch, you know, and enjoy the evening, but it, that's my biggest concern is, is the, the hydrology of the soil and just yeah. what's going to grow and how is it going to grow. And that's why I'm like, well, there's some pockets that are definitely higher. And I'm like, okay, well, if there's pockets that are higher, would I be better off, like, clearing that out and, you know, planting pockets of switchgrass that are, you know, maybe some of those pockets are 100-foot 
you know, in diameter circles, yeah, like that might be nice, but at the same time, like, is that going to be better than putting a bunch of Norway spruce or Black Hill spruce in there and then, you know, throwing in some type of, you know, switchgrass in the mix as well too. So you have some tall grasses in there with the pines, like what's going to be the best optimal mixture for it. Truthfully, I think like the only thing that's going to let me know is probably the next year or two as I'm cleaning it up, just seeing what naturally wants to occur there and how well that soil is going to drain versus retain moisture. And that's probably going to dictate like what I'm going to do. I've already decided I'm not going to try and spend countless amounts of time and hours trying to reshape something that naturally wants to go a different direction. I'm just going to try to, you know, put those, either those naturally occurring um, plants, you know, those, or just something that naturally wants to be there, whether it's a, like a wet footprint, like let's put something that wants to be wet there. If it's something that wants to be dry, let's let's just encourage what naturally wants to happen instead of trying to reshape or, or reinvent the wheel. No, that's a great point. And, I mean, you might not have to do anything. Or maybe you have to burn it off real quick, get rid of some of the litter, and then it's going to be gangbusters. You know, Brian and I talk about those wildlife cuts or, or cuts a lot. We... we mentioned in our plans and that's exactly what this sounds like um and to your point yeah don't go against don't go up river right don't go against right. the train. like don't don't start the battle like you know we've all learned that the hard way so um no that you this is this is awesome i think uh what what we talked about you know how you are going from 10 acres to 30 acres in a home i'm super jealous that's amazing and and I want to hear, like, the 130 in three years, the 150 in life, like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, what that means to you. And then, uh, you know, we're going to have, have you on again, obviously, down the road, maybe a year from now or so, to get an update on, uh, you know, are you full of it? Is it working? What's going on, you know? <laughs> no, man, it's it's, it's kind of crazy. It's like all all three of those those shooters that I had on camera that survived, depending on how they grow this year, all three of them could be 130 easily, if not more. And it's like, I know that if I'm going to be at this house forever and the hunting pressure that's apparently around the area to let these deer get that big already with, you know, again, I'm, I'm one property, I'm 30 acres. But if I start knocking on doors and I start talking to people and doing this and that and the other and, and start start a co-op, yeah, exactly. It's just like the, you never know what's going to actually physically happen or, or what the potential could be. But it's it's nice to have a, a canvas that I can and do a little bit more creation work and, you know, spend a little bit more time trying to, you know, make something out of, you know, just a big project. Well, especially you're not in like the – I know you might be in a little pocket where you're seeing some some good deer, but it's not like you're in a part of the state where it's you know there's booners running everywhere. It's I grew up on there. It's tough on there. Um, oh yeah, it, I mean it's, it's West huge. Michigan. It's Muskegon. Yeah, yeah, it's Muskegon County. Right. I mean, <laughs> we're not we're not known for for big deer. There was a couple no, nice tough. ones I got shot out of here last year, but I mean we're not known for for big deer by any means. Well, I think you're, I think you're on the the right path. And uh, again, I appreciate you hopping on here, and and I look forward to seeing if we can, you know, check that box in your goals. 
and uh, talk about it again, get an update you know, from you here in the future. Who knows, maybe it will be a game plan this fall on, on a 130 already, bud. Hey man, you know if I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the trail cameras hung in the next couple of weeks out there and just see what we got going on. But if if I got something consistent, I'll definitely shoot you a text. <laughs> for sure. Well, thanks for hopping on, Matt. Really appreciate you know all the conversation and all the knowledge. We covered a couple things there that uh, you know just out of nowhere, more knowledge bombs. I, I love this podcast. I love how we keep learning all the time, and and uh, just appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Jared and Brian. It's it's always uh, nice to talk to you guys and get all those different perspectives on everything, so I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plot. The Habitat Hook. Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. And Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.